So good evening. So uh, our retreat is about the mind and the heart, these two parts of ourselves, and, uh, and basically integrating them, really. How do, we, how do we work with them, and how do we develop them, and how do they integrate, and how does that help us? So the head and the heart, the wisdom faculty, the thinking faculty, the determining faculty, and then the sensing faculty, the, the intuitive, receptive heart faculty. A way that they're described, these are just different ways of describing them, some of which you'll relate to, um, would be that when we use the words vipassana, meaning clear seeing, inner seeing, clearly, and metta, meaning caring, friendliness, the head, if you like, and the heart. <coughs> so I'll start with talking about the, the heart, I mean the, the other, the head, the mind, our minds. And, you know, these all, we have lots of vocabulary that we use, and they're not exactly the same for everybody, and they're not the same that's always used in common parlance, but so I'll by way of definition, also explain maybe some of these terms. So this mind of ours, we are the modern human brilliant. We have brilliant, brilliant minds. We've developed them, very large neocortex compared to any other creature on our planet, um, and, and really, really rapidly developed it in anthropological terms in the last few thousand years. Um, and with that development of this, this part of our mind, this part of our brain, and therefore the capability of it, the mind, um, it, it's come along with the ability, that's why I use that term 12,000 years, the discovery of agriculture, the ability to make some kind of control over our environment. Up until that time, we were like all the other creatures in the world, vulnerable to nature. We were part of nature. We were eating things and they were eating us and we were sometimes thriving and sometimes starving depending on the weather and, you know, conditions and starvation conditions and so on and so forth. And when we discovered agriculture, we began to be able to impose more of our dominion over our world, which has really taken off, as we know. We're, look at what we've done to it now. And it's that kind of the mind that is able to think about, plan for, control, grow food for next year and store it in earthenware containers and all of the things that have come about in our evolution in these last numbers of years. Agri I mean, language developed, specialization of ability because we weren't just every day surviving, hunting and gathering for that next day. We started to be able to sort of plan and and then have much more of an overview. We began to be able to consider the astronomy and all these things. We started to have dominion over our world. Dominion comes from the Latin meaning dominus, which is lord or master, mastery over our world. And before that time, we didn't have that degree of mastery. I mean, we were learning slowly tools and all, but it really did pick up a pace. Mastery is one thing. Control is one thing. It's all very well to have a certain amount of control over or 
attempt to exert some control over conditions. But what happened to us, the human, is we were increasingly able to exert more and more control over our world. We developed that capacity so hugely. And what has happened is dominion has turned into domination. You know, domination has turned into exploitation, expectation, abuse even, you might say, as we, we know, we who love the planet and concerned about it see. It's, it's, it didn't have the, the constraints imposed beforehand on you know, the rise and fall of nature. We began to actually supersede and impose our brilliance. And this is all from this neocortex of ours. We kid ourselves now. We're in the modern human in a state where we think that we're way more in charge than we actually are. And then when something happens that we aren't controlling, those acts of God that the insurance companies have to sort of factor in, we're really shaken up. Is there a mistake here? How could this happen? Kind of thing. We know we get to that. We just really think we can predict. Life is predictable, we think. And so we've developed an arrogant attitude to our world um, based on our ability, we think, to control things. And so we're, in a, or we're oftentimes in a sort of state of shake-up when life reveals itself to us in a way that it's humbling for us. Then suddenly, out of left field, something happens that we didn't at all anticipate. And, but how can this happen to me? I'm a human being. Aren't I supposed to be able to stay young forever and get the right this and that and the other in my life? So this is all by way of speaking about the faculty that we have of our controlling mind, the controlling aspect of our mind. The comparing mind is part of that, that James was talking about last night, as we know. The mind is very busy, did you notice? <laughs> it isn't just busy, it is busy, but it's busy doing stuff that you actually don't necessarily want to do. Were you meaning to do the thinking you were doing today? We're attempting to not think so much. We're attempting to notice something going on in our legs or something going on in our chests with our breathing. And instead, the mind is having us do something else entirely. Is that not true? It's pretty sobering, especially when you're newer to this, to see how unbelievably a, busy it is, and C, not actually yours. It's just doing what it's doing in there, busy doing what it's doing. And so we, that's the first thing that's really shocking. Um, but we begin to realize how it does what it does, at least what it's trying to do. So because it's developed this um, ability to control its world, we have, it has, these minds of ours have, um, convinced us that controlling our world as best we can is good for us, is the modus operandi, the ultimate. It actually is in all kinds of ways as far as surviving. It's actually nicer to be able to build a house and stay warm and dry in the winter and you know, choose to have food that we like on our table and choose to discriminate between who our friends are going to be and who we don't want to hang around with. And it's been very effective. It really works for survival, i.e. <laughs> six billion people. Very effective, very brilliant. But it doesn't inherently bring a sense of well-being. It brings comfort, food, 
certain choices, but by its very nature, it's being busy, always wanting to control things, and the state of that active mind is disturbed. You know yourself in your own mind. There are moments that we have all, all day long. Sometimes they're so little and subtle that we, many of them we don't actually appreciate. But we have big ones every so often. I've been calling them in the last few years sunset moments. When you have a sunset moment, I have a house which has a very big view at the sunset side, and so I have a lot of sunset moments. And so when there's a sunset, lovely, ah, oh, in that kind of moment, the busy little mind goes quiet. Ah, oh, is what comes out of the mouth. It's just, oh, look. There is nothing that I need to control about it. There's nothing I would want to control. There's nothing required by me and my mind, other than just soak it up. In co- that's not how I live most of my life. That's not the typical state that this little mind is in. Then it's back to business as usual. Okay, let's fix supper. Let's stoke the fire. Let's do the next thing that we need to be okay. The activity of that, I call it often little mind. The busy mind, the neocortex, the controlling mind, is trying to get pleasant things and get rid of unpleasant things, smooth things out, keep things the way I think they should be. That's what it's doing in there all the time. Lots of the time, not all the time. Thank you very much. It's trying to help. (laughs) It's actually my assistant. I have, in the last few years, been calling it my executive assistant. She's pretty efficient. She's very sincere, she's very enthusiastic, and she's very busy. I was in a group of students a couple of years ago now, describing that part of myself as my executive assistant, and the man in the group, man in the group said, oh, I have an engineer. <laughs> and um, somebody else said they had something else. Somebody then said, I have... a." probably three little ones who are out there trying to help her cheer her up or complaining or whining or whatever. That's what goes on in her mind. And, uh, and then this English woman sat back and she said, I have staff. But what we often have is actually our best friend in there, sort of rooting for us, cheering us up, you know, like, you could do this, why don't you do this? And that little cheerleader person but often we have a tyrant in there. We have the comparing mind that um, James was talking about. For a lot of my earlier life, before the Dharma days, and in the earlier Dharma days, uh, when it got very exposed to me, um, James talked a lot about the comparing mind and the judge. I had definitely the judge. But one of the things I did, you didn't mention, although you've mentioned it before, because I don't know if it was you who taught it to me even, but Maybe I dreamed it up myself. <clears throat> but I would have this like, little, you know, executive assistant, you better not do that kind of thing and critical. Oh, I'm going to share another thing because you're here teaching with me. Um, and it was in the early 90s and I was meeting with, with uh, James one-on-one during a retreat here. And, uh, and we were sitting, he was sitting the way he's sitting now and I was sitting similarly opposite him. And he shuffled up so he was relatively close to me. And then he just asked me to proceed with my report on how my retreat was going and how I was doing. And, and, um, 
I think you warned me you were going to do it. But anyway, every time my little judge was like, oh, I just, no, 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 no. He would very gently nudge me with his foot on my, my shin. He'd, and at the end of 15 minutes, there must have been 15 times he'd kicked me in the leg. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> kicked me in the leg to show me just how, you know, acting out my judge was. So what I did with my little judging mind, um, self-critical, is I, um, I imagined it to be this little creature which I stuck on my right shoulder. And my little creature was Owl from Winnie the Pooh. I was raised in England. And so Owl, does anybody not know who Owl in Winnie the Pooh is? Owl in Winnie the Pooh is a, they're all, Winnie the Pooh is the, Winnie is the teddy bear, and then the various other characters are the various other toys, and they're all alive, right? They're given life by the author, who's the father of the, child who owns the toys so the main character is Winnie the teddy bear and Owl is the character who's wise Owl who's supposed to be wise and who thinks he is wise who's quite a big character in the uh, cast of characters who lives in a house in a tree and Winnie the Pooh always goes over to him to ask him things when he doesn't understand things and so he's oh we better go and ask Owl he'll know and so one question he asks Owl one day is what does the sign mean outside your door and it's a broken wooden sign, and it says trespasses W, and then it's broken off. And so Winnie the Pooh says, you know, what does this sound mean? He says, oh, that's, that's the sign of my, that's my uncle, trespasses William. So that's kind of who Owl is. He thinks he knows, and he has this very authoritative manner, but it's usually rather disdainful, and it's often critical and judgy, but he actually doesn't really know. <laughs> he just is kidding everybody. But because he does it in this kind of like judgy way, everybody believes him. At least the characters in the book believe him, and therefore you believe him. So anyway, and I made him a little owl. So he was this little person on my shoulder. So whenever my judgy mind started judging, I would just go like, put him sort of in his place and, and make this kind of playful little character who was acting out his silliness rather than being so believable. And it just caricatured it, and which gave me some blessed relief. So thank you, James. <laughs> so the busy little mind, the executive assistant, sometimes the judge, sometimes the staff, sometimes an engineer, but who is trying to help you be more comfortable? If you get the things you want, you'll be more comfortable. If you get rid of the things that are bothering you, fix it, you'll feel better. It's all the time trying to make you feel better. It does, as I said already, work for survival purposes to get food on the table, to find the mates, the friends, the people to be with. But deeply, it always leaves us having to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And so it's actually exhausting. And, and along with it is this tiring sense of got to do something, got to do something, got to do something. Even though it's meaning well. I have a friend and colleague who says what she does with hers is she pats it on the head every so often when it's being a little too busy and says, thank you, thank you, thank you, but we've got it covered. <laughs> Or you can go for the weekend now. You've done a great job. Now you can actually take the evening off. Thank you. So you can think of your little mind as your friend, but not quite as wise as she thinks she is. She's a little too big for her boots, I often say. She thinks that if she can get all the things you want and get rid of all the things you don't want and always keep trying to do that, then you'll be better off. And even though it's true on a certain level to a certain degree with miscellaneous things in a big, deep way, it's absolutely ridiculous because 
There's no way she can get all the things you want and get rid of the things you don't and keep the pleasant ones and keep the unpleasant ones at bay because we are not, in fact, with dominion over everything. Even though we've been practicing it and gaining increasing dominion, it's still very limited. We don't control the weather. We don't control the aging process. We don't even control our minds. Look at them today. They weren't even for five seconds doing what you wanted them to do, some of you. How clever is that? We're not actually that clever. We can't control what other people do and say and think. Even our own children. Try as we think we may. They actually are their own people doing it their way. We can't control our health. We think we can and we try and we you know, commit ourselves to going to the gym or whatever we're doing and eating organically, but... There's only so much that that can do. We know very well. But we try all the harder when we're failing rather than going like, there's only so much I can do here. The fact of the matter is, we say this often, but I think this is, we need to really have this up in our awareness, right in the front and center of our awareness. The Buddha taught this. He said there were eight vicissitudes of being a human being. Eight states, eight conditions, eight things that we're always experiencing, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and ill repute, the opposite. Life is this journey. On this plane, it goes up, it goes sideways, it hangs out in the middle, it goes down, up, down, up, down. Sometimes really peaking up, really peaking down, sometimes just flattening out. This is the deal here, but our little controlling minds would like there to be four. Thank you very much. And whenever there are eight, we often think there's a problem. There's something wrong. This shouldn't be. That's that little mind is not being very helpful when it thinks that, but it does think that, it believes that, which is why it's working so hard to try and write things, solve problems, get rid of unpleasantness. The teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the wise ones, say there's actually a different approach that's far more effective for well-being. Not to say we shouldn't be comparing, discriminating, planning, explaining, but not to the point that we think we can, then that's the only way to go, that that's all there is. There is um, one of the many volumes of the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha was a human being who taught for 45 years. And everything he said, well, not everything he said, but many of his words for many years were recorded. There's an enormous canon of work of his teachings. And the most commonly read, well-known, and most frequently translated is a little volume called the Dhammapada. And I expect most of us have at least glanced at it or seen it somewhere. And there may be people in this room who've translated it. It's the most succinct expression of the teachings of the Buddha, really. And uh, it's the first two little verses in it are these. All phenomena of existence have mind as their precursor. Mind is their supreme leader, and from the mind are they made. If with an impure mind we speak or act, suffering follows us 
as the ox cart wheel follows the foot of the ox. All the phenomena of existence have mind as their precursor, mind as their supreme leader, and of the mind are made. If with a pure mind we speak or act, happiness follows us like our shadow that never leaves us. Whether your mind is pure or impure, suffering or happiness is inevitable. And the, the example is clever. An ox cart being pulled by an ox is a heavy burden. A shadow, on the other hand, is completely weightless, utterly <coughs> delightful, totally easy. Happiness, easy happiness, or miserable heavy drag of suffering. Whether the mind is pure or impure, and what pure or impure means, clear, seeing clearly, understanding, or being deluded, busy, wanting more of this, wanting to get rid of that, trying to make me happy without really realizing that it's not possible. That's all it means. It's not like an evil mind or a stupid mind, but a mind that is not purified enough to see really what's the truth of things. Our little mind, our executive assistant mind, it will cause us to be distressed rather than happy. You will notice as you sit quietly watching your mind that these eight vicissitudes keep happening. Something pleasant happening, something unpleasant happening, something you'll be gaining, some ooh, nice little feeling of pleasure or an insight or feeling good, looking good, whatever. An unpleasant one, oh no, I shouldn't be doing this. A memory, somebody raises an eyebrow in your direction or walks out of the door and lets it shut in your face. So all these little things are gonna happen. And you will see that when something particularly pleasant happens in your experience, or particularly unpleasant, when it's peaks and valley time, your mind gets going more. When it's not particularly pleasant or not particularly unpleasant, the mind doesn't have so much to say. Because it's not so busy trying to get or get rid of. In fact, it can get completely spaced out if it's not particularly pleasant or not particularly unpleasant. That's another talk. But the stimulation that we get when things go really up or go really down gets our little assistant going. You'll see how that, you'll see that they go together. Because of that, because we believe that getting and getting rid of make us happy, we therefore make significant in our consciousness the ups and the downs. Up is good, I get going and get it. Down is bad, I get going and try and get rid of it or worry about it. So we're noticing and making important ups and downs. Therefore, that means that we are victims of ups and downs. We depend on ups and downs for our well-being. We believe, that's what we think. It's not actually true. We don't need to be dependent on ups and downs for well-being. The executive assistant thinks that. Owl thinks that. The comparing mind definitely thinks that. But it's possible for that not to be the case. It's possible for life to go up and be enjoyed and life to go down and be unpleasant and it not to cause us have to get more of this, have to get rid of that. We can actually extricate ourselves from this involved activity 
we can be with our life without being at the effect of our lives. We can be open to and aware of, receive fully the circumstances of life. We don't need to shut it out or deny it or pretend or avoid. But we don't need to make ourselves dependent upon. We can disconnect the dependence. And this is the the blessedness of spiritual teachings. Seen from a different perspective, life is sometimes beautiful, sometimes ordinary, sometimes benign, sometimes challenging, sometimes horrible, changing to something beautiful. Sometimes in the midst of awfulness, there's some incredible beauty. This is the truth of it. But it doesn't need to trigger us. It's possible. What a blessed relief. The freedom the Buddha talked about is freedom from being triggered into reactivity. That's the that's what it means. We're not free of the ups and downs. The ups and downs will always be there. That's part of the deal here. But free from being at their mercy. In their thrall, out of control. So what we learn as we watch our minds, we begin to see that there are two things happening all the time. There's circumstances happening, sights and sounds and smells and feelings and words and events and circumstances happening and changing. And then there's our mind interpreting it, responding to it. What we tend to do, because we think that the ups and the downs are what's important in our life, and we want plenty of ups and we want to avoid the downs, we don't look at the mind part, we just look at the what's happening part. That's where we look, because that's where we think it matters. What we're asked to do in meditation practice is look at our minds and see how is your mind responding to what's happening. Not what's happening, but how are you with it? Speak and act with a pure mind, you'll be happy. Speak and act with an impure mind, you won't be. Meaning, speak or act with some clarity of what you're seeing in your mind rather than not realizing and just being at the mercy of it. That's what it means by purity, impurity, right? So then the question is, are you using your mind to choose how to respond to things or are you being used by your mind and made to react to things? Who's in charge here? Is your mind your instrument or are you its instrument? I was teaching a retreat a few years ago, again in a small group, and uh, and there was a man on the retreat who had never had any kind of interest in spiritual anything for most of his working life. He was a working man. He was in his middle years, mid-50s maybe. And uh, and he, in the small group, we were having some discussion or other, and he suddenly, his sort of lights went on his eyes. He said, I get it. He said, it's about seniority. (laughs) I said, that's right. Who's in charge here? One of the things you will see, and James was saying this last night, when particularly pleasant is happening or particularly unpleasant is happening and the little mind is getting going, thinking, thinking, telling stories, figuring things out, trying to explain things, make comments, being a little owl, whatever it's doing, it's got 
um, the verb in there is an I. I want, I like, I don't think so. How could this happen to me? It's all about me. The busyness of our thinking mind, the controlling, dominating, dominating mind, the fixing, avoiding, planning, is the expression of the separate sense of self that James talked about last night. I like, I want, I don't want. It's the activity of being a, being a separate person. The sunset moment, no sense of me, no sense of getting, getting rid of, no I, words happening in the mind, it goes quiet in there. There's just sunset. Beautiful. There's a relief from that I-making behavior, that apparatus that's taking care of little you. We have little me's. We are little separate beings who get hungry and cold and need to be fed and need to be taken care of. Not to say that that's not so, but there is our consciousness is way, way beyond that. We can actually access much more of our experience than that survival smallness through that kind of thinking. One of the um, books that I read last year, I haven't read it now since the summer, actually, because I get gardening in the summer. I don't read so much. It was a fascinating book. Um, it wasn't a Dharma book. It's a sort of anthropology, philosophy, science. Um, and it was called The Master and His Emissary. Has anybody read that book? You like that book. Anybody else? It was a brilliant book. It's a, it's a, it's a very dense, intense read. But it's really, um, it's a thesis. It's a, a brilliant professor, Scott, actually. Um, but it's about the... The master is the description of the right hemisphere of the human mind, and the emissary is the left. So the right hemisphere, in his, he, and he's using modern neuro, you know, imaging, modern psychiatry, l huge amounts of research in um, uh, schizophrenia, people who've had epilepsy, who've had brain surgery, separating the hemispheres, like all modern science. And then he's a philosopher. He quotes philosophers down through the ages, since the Greeks, literally. Um, poets. It's very, very rich. It's, sort of, uh, it's a description of our civilization, Western civilization since the Greeks, in terms of the functioning of the right and left hemispheres, and when which have dominated, and over the eras, there's times when we've been more right hemisphere focused and more left, and uh, we're very much getting run away by the left at the moment, the scientific knowing, naming, busy little chattery neocortex is like supreme these days. We know, who do we give the most money to? People with lots of big neocortices, busily thinking all kinds of clever physical things and so on and so forth. And the artists, only rarely do they get major support in our culture. So um, it's just one way of understanding this, the, the functioning of how the mind and the heart work. I'm coming to the heart, I promise you. Um, the, there's another interesting book which um, I would recommend. That one I wouldn't necessarily recommend unless you want a really serious read. It's beautifully written, but there's a lot in there. It's like one of those big treaties. Um, is a much easier to read, but it's an interesting description also of the hemispheres, and some many of you probably know about her. Her name is Jill Bolte Taylor, My Stroke of Insight. Who's not heard of her? Okay, a few of you. Not so many. So it's a woman who, um, about 15 years ago, I don't know when actually, but uh, quite a number of years ago, was 37 years old and was the youngest um, in her field of neuroanatomy, 
brain structure and uh, understanding the functioning of the brain when in a shower one morning and, and at youngest and then female and it's not exactly a typical you know arena for women to be in but anyway this brilliant woman in the shower going to work one morning had a stroke on her left hemisphere dramatic stroke but because she was a neuroanatomist she realized what was going on um, and she did a, a very good TED talk. You can have an 18-minute talk. It's one of the most popular of all the TED talks. But she also has written a book, which, of course, is much more interesting because there's a lot more information in her book. But she is able to describe her experience. It took 10 years of recovery because she was fully functional in the right hemisphere, which isn't often what happens with strokes. They can be in different parts of the brain, but hers was completely discreetly. Her left hemisphere was impaired utterly, and her right was fully functional. So she could f- sense and feel um, and uh, receive energy fantastically clearly, but she couldn't get any words out of her mouth. She couldn't, it took her 45 minutes to be able to dial work to tell her colleague that she needed help because she couldn't remember the number. And she, you know, for instance, because that part of her brain, and she knew that was going on. Anyway, it's an extraordinary story. But she was an, an anatomist. She was not a Buddhist or a yogi or in any way. And what she, all through the book, she talked about nirvana and being in a state of bliss when she was living utterly in the right hemisphere, awareness, sensitivity, totally present, totally hearing and feeling and everything, no pain, but without any describing, any sort of rationalizing, any limiting, any um, linear thinking at all. And how she loved it, and how when she actually regained access to all of her brain, she didn't know she even wanted to. You know, she even wanted to have to compare the comparing mind, for instance, again, or compare herself to other people. Or and she said different things in her book, like her friends could tell which side of her brain was coming into the room. She'd walk into the room, and whether she was being open and available and friendly, or whether she was being critical or paranoid or something, they could see which side because she had spent such a significant chunk of her time so clearly not using the left hemisphere so it seems to me that the heart and the mind really describe more for us not necessarily completely but in a modern way the functioning of the left hemisphere and the functioning of the right of our brains and we need both of these hemispheres we need them to be integrated so the heart side of the brain the right side of the brain is is where we are touched by things where we get an impact, when we feel excited, when we feel the moods we feel, when we feel depressed, or when we feel uh, just even tender about something. Like, here's a little story, and you'll feel this in your right hemisphere. If we could wire up your brains, you'd be having activity in your right hemisphere. The story is of a woman whose name was Dorothy, I seem to remember. I don't know why I remember her name. I'm terrible at names. And, uh, and her story was that she um, lived in an apartment, and, um, and in the next-door apartment, the way it was, her living room apartment was next door to a bedroom of the next-door apartment, and there was a young family in that next-door apartment, and they would put their little toddler to bed every night and say goodnight, and then leave the toddler and then go off and watch TV, and she was beside that toddler's bedroom, and the, ba- the baby would then cry. And she could hear her crying and she didn't know what to do. And she didn't know whether she should go and tell them or go and interfere or, you know, have some opinion about the parenting skills or she didn't know quite what to do. But then she realized, well, if I can hear her, she can hear me. So she sang. And so she sang the baby to sleep every night. 
<laughs> your laughter, the, your feeling you're feeling, that's right hemisphere. That's the heart. It's the ability to be touched by, to be empathetic, to have compassion, to care, to be friendly. All of that aspect fully conscious, but without having to put words on it or describe it or try and figure it out or explain it or justify it or anything. It's just the direct impact. The intuition, the spontaneous understandings. When we have, a, when we have an insight, you have a sort of flash. We say, oh gosh, it just dawned on me. Boom. It wasn't through figuring something out. It was just like, boom, something's like, oh, I get that. That's the right hemisphere functioning. And it seems to me as we practice in meditation, we're increasingly attempting to train ourselves to be more like that. Be more fully present without the chattering and the describing and the explaining, commenting, judging, etc. with the words. Now one of the best ways to access the difference, the two of them, I think one of the best ways, but this is a useful way, is um, when we're doing hearing meditation. So when we do some hearing meditation, I don't think I'm going to do it as an experiment the way James does, but nevertheless, when, we, when we're hearing, and you, you, you know how this works for yourself, there are two things going on. There is the sound or sounds coming and going, loud or quiet, near or far, occasional or ongoing or whatever. There's the sound, a sound. That's one thing, the direct experience. And then there's your mind saying, I like that sound, that's, that's Heather's voice, Heather's talking too much, Heather's whatever, you know, like, that's high, that's near, that's an irritating cough, I wish she wouldn't weed, breathe so loud beside me, whatever. There's two things. There's the actual sound, it's just sound. And then there's the left hemisphere. So the sound is perceived by the direct impact. And then there's the thinking mind that's commenting on it. And you can see them both going on. And it's not that we don't want to be able to comment on things and recognize that's the blackbird, that's the bell for lunch, you know, good idea to know that. But not to, uh, we want to access more fully the direct experience because we're so good. This dominating mind is so well developed and it doesn't itself bring happiness. It brings explanation, definition, discrimination, and it easily sets up then comparisons and frustrations and separations. This is this person, this is young person, old person, big person, sick person, healthy person, all the differences. The right hemisphere is like, we're all laughing. It's the, it's the samenesses. It's the, it's the things that we share. Why do we like music? James talked about the, the uh, symphony. Why do we go to concerts or dances? Why do we sing? It's one of the most ancient ways human beings spend time in community is musically. It's like ancient because we all become one thing. That's where we cooperate. That's where we have empathy. That's where there's connection. But the discriminating mind is what separates. This is different from this. This is which is then easily, it doesn't have to, but easily becomes better than, worse than, more, less. We're good at that. We've needed that for survival, but we don't need just that. We need this other. We need our heart. So we can access more the heart aspect, the right hemisphere aspect, the intuitive, the direct sensing, receptive. But we have to deliberately do that because we tend to use the other much more. 
seems to me that's a lot of what we're doing in the training of meditation. There are one of the, there are many ways of accessing this heart quality, this quiet quality, this capacity we have, if you like, this sensitive heart mind. Many, many. I'll list just a few. James already mentioned several last night. Um, to be grateful. Just to reflect for a moment on our blessings, any blessing, a blessing. We have many blessings. We don't get to have to analyze, explain, justify, figure out anything. We just, it just like impacts us. Suddenly it's like there's a feeling of fullness, there's a feeling of tenderness, openness, expandedness, whatever words you might experience for yourself. It's a beautiful, sensible accessing of the mind. Kindness is another. I've got a few little kind quotes here. We all know this stuff. Aldous Huxley said this, people often ask me what's the most effective technique for transforming their lives. It's a little embarrassing that after years and years of research and experimentation, I have to say that the best answer is just be a little kinder. (laughs) I've got lots of little quotes and little bits of words here and and some of them I can't. Um, I, I don't know who said them. You know, over the years, you kind of copy and paste so many times. I don't get the author along with it. But the Dalai Lama says, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. It helps remove whatever fears and insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It's the principal source of success in life. Kindness. It's not like a separate part of us. That's the piece that's important to understand. It's an integration of these. We need them both to function. But kindness makes us feel good. We've survived because of kindness. Human babies cared for are cared for longer than any other mammals. Jill Bolte-Taylor's recovery, she said, thrived under, under kindness, not just technical assistance. And she could completely experience that because she was so tuned into the kindness. Even though she was getting technical help, she knew she could feel herself benefiting and being healed when people were kind to her. Whatever they were saying, however clever they were with their drugs and needles or whatever it was that she needed. Thomas Merton, beautiful wise being, be kind to everyone you meet because each has been asked to carry a great burden. That's your right hemisphere going, mm. <laughs> I don't know who this was, but it was one of the Indian sages from the last century. Some, some student said to him, how do I treat others? The answer is, there are no others. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a quote from a poem. I love Hafiz, the poet, the Persian mystic poet Hafiz, who's a contemporary sort of close to Rumi's, who's usually more famous. This is two lines from one of his poems. Um, There is no one who is not trudging along with as much courage and dignity and style as he possibly can. And there's another little quote that's similar to that. Oh yeah, this is Longfellow, the poet. If we could read the secret life of our enemies, we would find there in each person's life enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. Well, how about your own secret life? Can you see in your own life the struggles and the suffering that you keep finding yourself caught in? And can this disarm your own self-hostility? It can. It will. It definitely does. That's enough quotes for the moment. So... Another little aspect of, um, oh yes, I was just, metta, the practice of metta, all the different versions of how we can practice friendliness, kindness, wishing ourselves well. Just, you know, as I said yesterday and and as, as James taught this afternoon after lunch, just visualizing a sense of comfort or a sense of ease or a sense of peace. It's accessing that right hemisphere. It's not buying into all of the commentary of the left hemisphere which is limited in its wisdom, remember, it's like owl. Chogurin Trungpa, who's uh, the first Asian, the first um, uh, Tibetan Rinpoche to come to the West in the 70s, says this, he says um, that our, our uh, thoughts that are going on in our, produced by, I would say, the left hemisphere, are like the foot soldiers, and the emotions are the generals. So this is just an interesting way to think or to observe yourself. Somebody asked a question this morning, and I know we didn't have a lot of time to answer, but I would have spoken to you. I think it was your question this morning um, about all this, you know, all this thinking. I don't know if it was you, but somebody asked about thinking. Um, and sometimes the thinking really gets going. When the thinking really gets going and you find yourself really in a strong thought loop or on a big you know, long train or you've been there for a long time or you keep going into that same little saga that you keep going into, there's a reason for it. And the reason is that there's some feeling there that's being just generating that kind of thinking. So if you're really worried about something, you'll be thinking all those worrisome thoughts. If you're really hurt about something, then you'll keep thinking about that scenario or that person or what they said or this, the whole little drama. You know, if you're really excited about something or you're newly in love with somebody or something like that, you're going to be thinking about the reason, the generating of the thoughts is by, it's like there's a motor in the basement, I always think. There's some little engine producing all that thinking. So one of the ways we can become just with it in, more in our hearts and more present, instead of, thinking of the content of the story, which is all that left hemisphere activity, all that mental storytelling, is go directly to the general or the motor, the feeling that is being generated. It's like, oh, I'm worrying. Then you can just allow in and feel 
the feeling. But the trouble for our, our uh, the, the reason our executive assistant or general, whoever you've got going, engineer, is busy is because we are deeply afraid of feeling anything unpleasant. We deeply believe there should be only four vicissitudes, and when there's eight, and they particularly upset us, those, those other four, those other four, then we actually are afraid that we're going to not be able to handle it. And so then our little executive assistant gets thinking, okay, we can figure it out, we can solve the problem, or, or at least we can blame somebody, or we can at least sit here worrying about it, something. If we can't fix it, then we can sue the <laughs> Uncle Sam or something. Because we are actually afraid of not feeling okay. We, we want to avoid unpleasantness. But guess what? Eight vicissitudes is our deal here. We discover we can feel unhappy. We can feel hurt. We can feel disappointment. We can tolerate grief. And once we are able to realize, yeah, we are going to get old and we are going to get sick and we are going to die and we're going to lose the things we love somehow or other, sooner or later... And this is okay. It's actually part of being a human being. We can start being fully instead of avoiding and trying to just have half of it and being so busy and frantic. We can start feeling like this is grief. And grief is powerful and it's hard and it's horrible and it's beautiful. If I hadn't loved, I wouldn't grieve. Pain is, uh, is unpleasant, but there's something exquisite about the truth of being able to be with it. It's empowering. Life isn't supposed to be, you know, just roses and no thorns. We discover we actually have a lot more capacity and a lot more strength to be with the truth of all of it, all of the eight vicissitudes, without having to try and think ourselves away. So we can go directly to whatever we're feeling, even when it's unpleasant. But what we don't want to be doing is having the little mind, oh no, this should never have happened, oh, I'm never going to be able to do this, how could they do this to me? And adding all of its other, other darts, it's not just one other dart, it has another 25,000 other darts, it's like making a big deal out of it. Let's just feel pain, let's just feel hurt. It's radical, it's not what we think will actually bring well-being. It doesn't make sense to the rational mind, but when we can allow in and, and sense into the ups and the downs, all of it, it's like a sunset moment. It just is sad. It's just kind of poignant. I just came out of my own retreat. I take my own quiet time in November every year, sometimes for longer and sometimes for shorter. This time it was a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks. And... Um, this exactly was going on when I, I, I had a, a quiet time, not a lot of issues happening in my mind moment in my life. Um, and I um, had, for some reason, what I was working with or playing with, experimenting with, not unlike what James was suggesting this morning, that little experiment about when you're aware of your breath or aware of a pain, can you be also aware at the same time of your whole body? That kind of spacious, expanded I was doing a lot of that with my mind, a lot of expanded awareness, a lot of f stretching my sense of awareness really big. Just, I did. Anyway, I came out of the retreat and it was time to get ready to come here, actually. So I had to sort of get myself together. I have a daughter and a granddaughter who were visiting, so I had to be a little bit busy. And, and um, <clears throat> the first 
and I had to have a conversation with a house sitter to tell her about feeding the cat and whether, you know, if the power fails in a winter storm, this is where the water supply is, blah, blah. And so I had to kind of get myself together. And the very first feeling I had, of course, was reluctance to get speeded up because it's so lovely to be quiet when you really can get quiet and spacious and no responsibilities and such a luxury. I do enjoy it. Um, but then seeing how my mind pretty soon was going to get all busy and neurotic like everyone else is and I was going to be having to make opinions and, you know, this part of my mind was going to get doing its thing and I had reluctance. I was like, oh, I just don't want to be like that. I want to just be a quiet heart, you know, just a big tender open heart and not have to do all that stuff. So I had resistance, but it very soon to be like the way we all are. But very, very soon, like in moments, I had this tender feeling about it's such a, it's such a thing being human, being sensitive, being, you know, we, we do have these vulnerable, tender hearts. We do get impacted by stuff. And then we do frantically try and figure it out and work it out. And, and we're so dear. And it's hard work. And I just had this tender, sort of poignant feeling of we're not crazy. We're not stupid. We're not bad. We just do all we can do to be as okay as we can and use all of our, some of our minds too much and you know, we, it's, it's hard, it's beautiful, it's tender, it's sweet, it's poignant, this being a human. So, integrating the heart, that direct, receptive, and the mind, that ability to delineate, to explain, this is what this is, this is what's happening. This is me, this is you, this is mine, this is yours. I'm not going to get into that bed. This is your bed. That, you know, we, you know, this is, I'm, I'm actually driving in America. I'm going to be on the right side of the road, etc. We need both of these together. When you think of a wise person, who do you think of when you think of a wise person? One of the wisest people you know. Think of a wise being. One of our many, many of us favorite person, because so many of us know is the Dalai Lama, such a wise human, so famous. But when you know a wise person, Dalai Lama, whoever, they are also, you'll, when you think about it, the kindest person you know. If you have apparent wisdom and it isn't kind, it isn't actually wisdom. It may be clever or knowledgeable or authoritarian or charismatic but it has to be really kind for it to be really wisdom. Wisdom is both. Wisdom expresses itself with love. You can have a loving person who's not necessarily wise. Somebody may be loving out of need or out of, you know, endlessly supplicating themselves to be generous or whatever. It may, may, not, it may be a wholesome, but maybe not so. But if they're both there, it's the real thing. The integration of both. So this is the way Ajahn Suchito, who's one of the also very senior monks in the uh, Ajahn Chah tradition. Last night, James was talking about Ajahn Sumedho. So this is a, another monk, his uh, great stature, very well-loved Englishman, Ajahn Suchito. He uses, um, he refers to often in his teachings, these two, can I find where it is? Lost my piece of paper. The, for the mind that is able to describe and delineate and put words and discriminate the left hemisphere, 
the, the word in the teachings of the Buddha is mano, M-A-N-O. And the heart-mind, the intuitive, I would say the left hemisphere part of ourselves that's touched and moved and receptive is citta, C-I-T-T-A, the heart-mind, the mind-mind and the heart-mind kind of thing. And what he says is clever. He says, see this hand of mine? You've all got a hand or two, if we're lucky, two of them. The mano part is the fingers, which can get things and do things and manipulate things and get rid of things and rearrange stuff. The palm is the chitta that can receive and hold tenderly. We need them both. Just a palm without hands is very vulnerable and very unable to make much direction or help itself very much. It's just like sort of at the mercy of whatever lands in it, really. But if you just had a bunch of fingers with no palm, they wouldn't be able to, they couldn't hold on to anything for very long. They couldn't actually gather something in or receive anything. I think that's a very clever analogy. Both together, though, discriminating, understanding, thinking about, reflecting, and then just receiving the direct impact, both together make this extraordinary thing that we have. This is some of the way he describes it. Mano is conceiving or organizing, producing concepts, articulating thoughts, defining things, speech. This is a dog. It can even dis- define your mind state, worrying, sad, happy, bored. That's the mind that's able to describe that. It can juggle theories. It can think about tomorrow and the universe and all that. That's all that left hemisphere. Chitta is the affective emotions, the feeling sense, being moved or touched by something, uplifted, excited, depressed, joyful, hurt, fully feeling something, inflated, deflated, all of that. So mindfulness is the ability of our minds to to name something, to say this is what it is, this is what's what. Happiness is happening, sitting is happening, breathing is happening. The way James was describing our uh, instructions today, that ability to know what's happening, what's what, that capacity of mind, the knowing mind, that kind of knowing. But it's not the only form of awareness as we meditate. We also have this other, that's sati or mindfulness. It can put boundaries around things, describe things. It doesn't judge. It isn't an owl. It isn't comparing. It isn't liking. It isn't better. It isn't worse, which is why you can't fail at this and you can't do it well or badly or anything. It's just saying, oh, yes, thinking, oh, been in Paris for the 10 minutes, present again, okay, feeling bored, feeling hungry. It's just kind of able to describe mindfulness. But then we have this other part of uh, using the mind in meditation. I just want to add this in here. Um, It's called Sampajanya. Sampajanya. Sampa, S-A-M-P-A-J-A-N-N-A, Janya. Double N is pronounced Nya. Um, And it means uh, fully comprehending. Not just knowing, describing, worrying, say. Okay, I'm worrying. That's worrying. That's what it is. It's then staying there and fully soaking it up. Letting it in. Savoring. Worrying is like this. 
so that the awareness knows what it is and then Sampajanya fully experiences it, whatever it is. And we can choose what we want to do with that. We don't have to get into and stay with every single fleeting everything. But if something's recurring a lot or strong for you, then you can use your mindfulness to say, oh yes, not the content of it, not the story or the details, but the, the inner reflective, this is my experience. This is how my mind is relating to what's happening. It's worrying, let's say. Worrying. And then, what's worrying like? What does it feel like? Not what is it, why is it, how did it happen? That's all that left hemisphere. But like, get close to, oh, can you actually become full of what that experience is? This is how we use these two hemispheres, the mind-mind and the heart-mind in meditation. And then that way we're directly experiencing our life. And that is clear. It's not commenting about or wishing for or having opinions and stories which are all in the way of what's really true. It's being directly with your life. Like this, it's like this. It's, so it's coming c- close to what's going on. And this is the teaching that uh, the Buddha taught. When we can be like that with our life, we can be truly responding appropriately. This is pleasant, we can enjoy it. We can see, oh, the little mind's gonna want to plan for one. I want, I want the recipe that soup tonight you know I want to make sure I have that and it's not wrong to do it but that's the, when it gets going it gets triggered and busy and the same in the, in the negative world we can see or we can just simply let ourselves really experience the cold if it's cold and the wet if it's wet it's like oh we don't have to go oh I didn't bring a raincoat get all in a big snit about it and add a few thousand darts we can just go like oh cold it's like this sad it's like this this way we can be alive with our life simply openly fully easily without getting exhausted trying to make it be something that it isn't it's actually much easier to meet life this way it's simpler it's easier and it's it's um it's a relief it's being with things as they are, the truth of it, instead of what we want and what we think and what we should and that arrogant way that we developed with this evolving humanoid. So there, I went on a little bit long also. That's enough talking. Let's just go quiet for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.